Welcome to the Atlanta Foodcast by Georgia Organics. I'm Mary Elizabeth, Georgia Organics Communications Director. On today's episode, we're continuing the Georgia Organics Annual Awards celebration with a conversation between Lauren Cox, who heads up our Farm to Restaurant program, and three winning farmer champions, Stephen Satterfield of Miller Union, Chris Wilkins of Root Baking Company, and Stevenson Roslow of Wrecking Bar Brew Pub. We hope you join our party to celebrate these chefs on Thursday, May 27th. Details at georgiaorganics.org awards. In our second segment, we have a very exciting guest. Stephen Satterfield is chef, writer, and soon-to-be Netflix host of High on the Hog. He's in conversation with Atlanta Foodcast guest host, Kiana Upton of Nourish in Black and Nourish Botanica. So buckle up, y'all, because today's show is packed with excellent guests and interviewers. Enjoy the show. First up, our organic procurement coordinator, Lauren Cox, who heads up the Farm to Restaurant program, talks with farmer champion winners, Stevenson Roslow of Wrecking Bar Brew Pub and Chris Wilkins of Root Baking Company. This year's debut class of farmer champion restaurants source from Georgia farmers every week and are being celebrated for having the top local and organic spend out of 20 other participating restaurant partners. They've worked with the Farm to Restaurant program even through the pandemic on projects supporting farmers like Food Fight Georgia and the Midweek Pop-Up Market. Lauren talks to them about how they, became, how they came to source locally, their legacies in the kitchen, and how to low-key convert folks into becoming local food enthusiasts. Hi, everyone. Welcome um, to the Georgia Organics Foodcast. My name is Lauren Cox, and I manage the Farm to Restaurant Program at Georgia Organics. <clears throat> and I've been working with our guests that we have today on a campaign that connects eaters, that's you all, to restaurants, and in this case, bakeries as well that are true farmer champions. Um, now our guests today, some of the forerunners in sourcing from local and organic farms here in Georgia, we are talking to Chris Wilkins, the owner and lead baker, I guess you would call it, um, of Root Baking Company in Pont City Market, and Steven Roslow, owner of the Wrecking Bar Brew Pub in Little Five Points, both in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you both so much for being on here today. Um, Thanks for having us. Hear a little bit about your your businesses. Um, how you know, Chris, a little bit about your business, about the bakery, and how you incorporate local sources and what you do. Because I imagine you know when people think about bakeries, they don't necessarily envision a lot of vegetables. Um, yeah, how do you incorporate and, and tell us a little bit about Root Baking Company? So Root Baking Company started in, by the way, thank you for having us. Uh, it's really nice to be here and I'm, I'm honored to be joined by esteemed company. Um, so Root Baking started in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, my wife and I um, started in 2015 um, and our goal then, as is now, was to uh, explore sort of Southern flavors through Southern heirloom grains. So uh, I was living in Savannah, Georgia at the time, and I had moved to Charleston, where it was at the time was kind of the epicenter of um, 
heirloom southern grains i guess at the, at the moment we had you know uh charleston gold rice carolina gold rice um jimmy red corn all this kind of stuff and all these producers around the low country growing grain uh, as, as they have for for generations uh and so we made it our mission to explore those the history of those grains and explore the history of these flavors um through sort of artisanal baking techniques and so uh yeah we were, we were there for about two and a half years and then we um it i love charleston with all my heart and uh the flooding didn't love me back. And so we uh, moved to Atlanta uh, after the, the uh, we moved to Atlanta in uh, 2017, 2018, and we relocated the bakery to um, Pont City Market, which is a fancy shopping mall uh, <laughs> in the heart yeah. of <laughs> They hate when I say that, but it, it's true. Uh, a fancy shopping mall in the old fourth ward. And we um, together with a, a dear friend of mine, Matt Homerly, uh, who's one of the most talented chefs I know, we, we basically decided to continue our mission of exploring Southern flavors and Southern grains and Southern baking traditions uh, and kind of combine it with food um, and Matt's, Matt's food specifically. Uh, and so we kind of expanded our mission to incorporate some more Appalachian heirloom grains and some, and so we could, we could go just outside the low country with, you know, where honestly rice, rice is, is king. Um, and then we can now get into sort of upland varieties of rice and wheat, um, which now we, we source a lot of wheat from uh, Day Spring Farms in uh, uh, Danielsville, Georgia. Uh, and uh, we've been working with them for the past two years or two and a half years or so. And now we have our second harvest of uh, like heirloom Georgia grown heirloom organic wheat, which is called Rouge de Bordeaux. And it's kind of changed the nature of their, of their wheat, wheat farming. Um, so that's been a really exciting project for us. That's, that's the kind of stuff we do now. Um, and uh, we kind of continue to invest in local relationships with, with grain growers in the Southeast. So whether you grow corn or wheat or rice or sorghum or whatever you got, rye, um, we, uh, we want to talk and we want to, find ways to use these things in our baking, whether it be bread or pastry or stuff on top of bread or inside of pastries. So that's, that's kind of what we do. That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't even, there's a whole world, I guess, of all of the grains. And like you said, the rices, you could do all kinds of thing with things with rice in baking and corn. Um, that's fascinating. And I think that when, at least I think about, you know, kind of farm to restaurant or farm to table things, I don't, that's not what comes top of mind. You know, I don't think about grains as top of mind, but that is a component of what's in every meal you eat more or less. Um, so it's a, it's a it's a huge component, especially in the low country, which is why we started there. Rice is they have a rice culture, right? And so, um, the sort of the sort of rhythms of the season kind of revolve around rice harvest, or have have historically. And you know, um, as we moved up here, we've gotten deeper into like this is this is a a field corn, a little more a little more field corn, a little more sorghum, things like this that are that speak more to um, the more elevated regions of the Southeast, of course. 
Um, and so we've been kind of able to explore that uh, through, through our baking. It's been a lot of fun so far. We made a lot of good friends. Man. Um, yeah, well, what about you, Stevenson? You know, kind of same thing. Like when I think about a brew pub or kind of like a casual, you know, eatery, I don't, I don't necessarily think of what I, I associate with a farm to table kind of small plates, fancy plates, um, sourcing locally. How do you tell us a little bit about Wrecking Bar, Brew Pub, and how you incorporate local stuff into your menu? Absolutely. Um, thanks, Lauren, for putting this all together. It's been a long journey. And uh, thanks, George Organics. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure and very proud to be in the same company, Chris. And um, it's nice to see um, us pulling the farmers and the people that do all the hard work. You know, not to say what we do is not hard work, but if you've ever spent time on a farm for a day or a week, you know, you, you feel it that day and the next day. You, uh, you earned your day. Lauren, I know you used to work outside at Woodland Gardens. Um, I, I have, we have our own farm here at Wrecking Bar Brew Pub as well. So um, it all started probably as a kid. I, uh, my parents were hippies. My dad was a farmer and we grew um, a lot of our own food. And uh, he was a citrus farmer. That was the main um, source of income for the family. And, and then we, you know, the we had a little farm, little, little citrus grove, you know, 30 or 40 acres on the Indian River in Fort Pierce, Florida. And, and then he started just growing everything at our little homestead at the house. And it was kind of fun, you know, walk around and picking fresh green beans off the vine and eating them. And, you know, um, I can remember showing some friends around one day as a kid and having, you know, 45, 50 different edible fruits and vegetables on the homestead. It really sunk in. And, and anybody that eats like this knows um, fresh food tastes better. And it tastes better because it is better. It's better for you. Um, so ultimately, when I got the opportunity to open my own restaurant, you know, it was our goal to serve as much of this local organic produce and elevate the pub menu. Uh, we love the pub menu because it's, um, it's comfortable. It's something for everybody. You know, the neighbors here can come multiple times per week and get a burger. Um, but that burger is beef ground at White Oak Pastures at their abattoir on the property. Um, and uh, it's the best beef in Georgia. It's the best beef I can get. Um, so we just kind of went down the, the list and tried to do the same thing. Uh, it's not something that happens overnight. You know, it's we're 10 years at this now, our anniversary next month on Father's Day. And, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of really good people. We've had a lot of amazing chefs come through the door here and spend time. And, you know, I got to give props to them for helping advance our sourcing to bring the quality of our food up every day by finding um, better and better sources. We just, you know, we care about the ingredients. We bring them in, try not to mess them up, you know, put them on a plate, uh, highlight those ingredients, don't overcook them, don't overseason them and uh, enjoy it. Yeah, so it seems like both of y'all in your respective, um, you know, in the food world of which you circulate, it's not kind of this in your face thing. It's just ingrained into what you do. It's a subtle thing and it's, it's fully integrated. So for those eaters, you know, that go to the, that want to support local, they go to the farmer's market every weekend. They connect with their farmers in that way. Do you think they know that you do this type of sourcing? Is it something that you 
you toot your horn about or is it something more subtle and um and if people want to come support you you know where can they do that um stevenson yeah i mean i think those people that go to the farmers markets they know they know now because they care you know that's why they're at the farmers market to start with if you're a newcomer to the farmers markets ask your favorite farmers where where they sell their food you know in town what restaurants buy their food that's a good way for them to start supporting that farm even further. And then the local, um, you know, um, people, restaurants, community that cares, bakers that care about the source. Um, that's the only way you can achieve, you know, great food. You know, our, um, to answer your question, I guess, just just be, be intentional about where you spend your money. Um, yeah. And uh, vote, you know, especially in these, tougher times over the last 14, 15 months, you know, it, it's shown those people that are loyal and care about good food and care about their health. You know, we've seen them and we've seen them come and vote day after day. Yeah. And Chris, you guys, Root, Root has kind of evolved through this whole pandemic. You all do a farmer's market now. So you're kind of going, going over in that lane. Um, how can we all support you and, and do your customers, has that helped tie in you know, the, the sourcing you do and, and drive that point home to your customers. Uh, interestingly enough, I'm not sure people, <laughs> a, a huge percentage of people give a hoot about the grain being local. You know what I mean? It's, it's. That's so it, interesting. Well, it, it is, it is, but also it's entirely expected because if you think about like, like grain is literally a commodity, right? You buy it in a bag in the dry goods section at your DeKalb farmer's market, most people or Whole Foods or Kroger or whatever. That's a good point. Um, and so like, when you think about something as a commodity, it's hard to, it's hard to put added value to it. And so the only way to really add value to it is to make it killer, uh, really good. And so um, I would probably say that 30% of people think that our stuff is, is, is special because you know, the wheat is fresh milled or that it's local or organic or whatever. Uh, I think that's a nice, that's a nice sort of value added proposition for a lot of folks. And so um, that kind of, that kind of, if you're just trying us out for the first time, that'll kind of seal the deal for some folks to give us a shot. But I, I tend to think that what keeps people coming back is, is quality of quality of product. And so, you know, I think sort of in baking anyway, the lesson we learned from the seventies with the sort of back to the land movement was like, you know, hippie bakers making, you know, super heavy, dense loaves of whole wheat that was milled by hand and all that kind of stuff is that the bread kind of sucked. Right. So, <laughs> and so, and so, it, and so it's, it's one thing, it's one thing to support local. It's another thing to support local, but the thing kind of sucks. Right. And so like, you know, I think to Stevenson's point, like not messing up those ingredients and making them kind of be what they are um, is a really hard job, right? And so like, I think I think a lot of restaurants, it, it's it's simplicity as my grandmother said is, is the most difficult thing in the world. And so uh, I tend to think that um, taking those lessons from the seventies, like, yeah, it's, it's local, but it's also a brick and saying like, well, this is local and it will do everything that you're, loaf at Whole Foods, your loaf at, you know, your favorite co-op, whatever will do, but it's local or it's made better. Or we thought about the flavor aspect of it and the sourcing aspect of it, which makes your job twice as hard, but also it makes it 
twice as worth it. And so I think that that's sort of our approach is that the sorting thing, we don't really talk about that much because no one really cares. Um, and we don't want to lecture people too much because it's a farmer's market and you got to keep that line moving. Um, <laughs> or, or it's a retail market and we got to keep that line moving. And so if people ask, we'll, we'll be nerds. We'll, we'll celebrate it. We'll talk about it. We'll sing their praises. But honestly, most people don't ask. They just say, this is delicious. See you next week. And yeah. uh, we sort of incept you know, local quality, organic quality into people's minds. They don't know why it's better. They just think it's better. And so when they have something that's worse, they say, why is, why is everything better? And so maybe then, then they ask a question. But initially, they don't really give a hoot about why, why yeah. what, what makes it better. You're kind of, you're both kind of subversive a little bit in the way you incorporate local food into people's, you know, diets in a way. It's kind of subversive uh, stuff there. Rebels. It's, like a long, it. it's a long game, you know, and it's not to be braggadocious. You just do it because it's right, because we know it tastes better. It is yeah. better. And uh, the public will figure it out in the a lot of them have already. And like you, like Chris said, you know, most people don't do it because it, you know, on paper, it's better. They, they, they return because it tastes better. It tastes better. Yeah. Also, the body, know, also yeah. the body knows that. Also, I think there's a, there's something to be said to, as far as sourcing goes, and this is, this is an aspect we don't think about, <clears throat> but there's something to be said about um, the staff that works for us doesn't know any different for the rest of their careers. In this industry anyway right and so like when you work when you work for root baking when you're for wrecking bar when you're for five and ten empire state south when you work for miller union when you work for anybody like that uh the way that the way that we source is the only way that most of these kids know and so when they go on to a different job that's just what they do right and so like i source the way i source because that's kind of how i learned it right yeah uh, i learned at an organic bakery in vermont um 100 years ago and we just we bought pallets and pallets and pallets of like local sometimes not all the time but always organic wheat and so like i didn't know any different when i got into the got into the business for myself of course and so like you just do the thing that you know and that's what most people do in this in this business like you just do the things that you were taught from a bunch of different sources and then it, it basically continues a chain of sourcing throughout throughout their careers. And so you're taking good practices and spreading it um, the way a yeah. farmer does broadcast the field or something. I, lo I love the legacy of it. I love mm -hmm. the legacy of it. And I think we'll talk a little bit about that more with the other guests that we have on too. Um, it's a great thing to talk about. And, for, and so now we also have, um, for those of you listening who may not know, who the restaurants are or businesses that source from local farms. It's a little easier to know if you go on the Good Food Guide. Um, both Wrecking Bar Brew Pub and Root Baking Company, like I said, are forerunners in sourcing from local and organic farms here in Georgia, and they are part of the Farmer Champion campaign. So go to the Good Food Guide and check that out. If you're looking for places to uh, support work our Georgia farmers, and really quick, can you both tell us how folks can go out and support you? What are your hours? Um, what, do you, what are some cool things that you have going on? And uh, we'll start with Chris and then we'll end with Stevenson. Uh, well, you can actually buy Root Baking Co. Company's bread at Whole Foods. 
which is um, nice. Thanks, dudes. Uh, yeah, they're they're actually. Yeah, listen, we're uh, we're just subsidized by Bezos. So this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's listening. Uh, yeah, they're actually they are terrific to work with. They they you can buy our bread at um, right now. I think six of them in Atlanta. I think we're about to expand to all nine. Um, and all all that bread and those Whole Foods is the same bread that you'd buy anywhere else. It's fresh milled flour, sourdough from Day Spring Farms, um, which is terrific. Also, we have a retail shop. If you're into that, we're at Morningside Farmers Market every Saturday at the Presbyterian Church. I think. I think I think I think that's the church. I don't know. I, I know we're at the market, um, but uh, I think it's the Presbyterian Church, uh, Morningside Heights, and then. Uh, we have a pizzeria, which kind of abides by the same sourcing principles as the bakery, where the bakery is in Pond City Market. So any one of those things, we'll, we'll be happy to hang out with you. Awesome. I, I will say, I have to admit to the listeners that I have uh, multiple times gone and picked up pizza at Rue Baking Company and gone to the drive-in. So if you're looking for a date night, it's a great, it's a great option in Atlanta. So... Stevenson, what about you? What about Rick? I have to say, um, it's my favorite baguette. You know, it's the hard, probably the yeah. hardest loaf to make in my mind. And I'm um, the only one that like really passes muster here. In, in oh, Root, Root Baking yeah. Company? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I don't just get one, too. I eat one on the way home and then share the other one with somebody else. So <laughs> thanks. Thanks for that. Thanks <laughs> you back to those little strolls in Paris, you know, when you eat sure. one on the way back to the hotel. Um, with a little butter, of course, a lot of butter. Um, Wrecking Bar, uh, we're open um, Tuesday through Saturday. Um, we open at four o'clock in the afternoon till nine during the week. Uh, Friday, a little later till 10. And then Saturday, we're open all day, 12 to 10. We look forward to expanding those hours, you know, when the local venues here in the neighborhood open back up. And we typically are open till midnight on the weekends, serving good food. Um, you can find us here at the Wrecking Bar. Obviously, we make our own beer. All that beer is sold here in cans, um, and you can see it in great pubs and uh, bars around the state as well on draft. Um, and uh, that's a that's a source for us. You know, we uh, we use some Day Spring Farms grains in those beers. Um, we'd love to do more, but it's hard to find really good barley in the South. Um, to it's floor malted and you can use as a base grain, but. Uh, yeah, come support Wrecking Bar Brew Pub and uh, Miller Union, Empire State South, 5 and 10, Brew Baking Company, um, and any other restaurant on that good food guide. Go to your farmer's market, go to your local farms, spend your money where it counts. It'll be there tomorrow for you. Um, we appreciate y'all. Awesome. Thank you both so much. I hope y'all have a beautiful weekend. It's going to be gorgeous. And uh, Chris, I hope you have a good farmer's market. Now, we'll continue talking to another Farmer Champion Top 3 winner in Part 2 of this segment. Lauren Cox is in conversation with Farmer Champion Stephen Satterfield of Miller Union. Remember to register to join us for Georgia Organic's annual awards celebration this Thursday, May 27th. You'll hear more from these Farmer Champion winners. Register today at georgiaorganics.org awards. And you can find all of our Farmer Champion partner restaurants throughout Georgia on our Good Food Guide by visiting gfg.georgiaorganics.org.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Georgia Foodcast, everyone. Again, my name is Lauren Cox, and I am the Organic Procurement Coordinator for Georgia Organic's Farm to Restaurant Program and the Farmer Champion Campaign. Today, we've been talking to a group of chefs that have gone above and beyond in their local and organic sourcing. And now I'm going to bring on a chef and the co-owner of Miller Union in Atlanta, Georgia, Stephen Satterfield. Stephen, so good to have you on the Georgia Foodcast today. And congratulations to you and Chris and Stevenson as well for being among the top three farmer champions in 2021. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be recognized. We're really excited. Awesome. So yeah, so all the folks on this podcast today were in a group of 20 restaurants that became part of the campaign uh, by doing this type of sourcing. And it seems like the number of restaurants and chefs buying local and organic is expanding every year, albeit slowly but surely. Stephen, can you talk a little bit about the legacy of what you're creating for Miller Union and that type of sourcing? I mean, are you teaching this new generation of cooks to follow suit? And, and how does that kind of work? Lauren, I love that question because I do think you're right. It's really the, the farm to table movement has grown drastically in, in the city of Atlanta. And where a decade ago, there were only a handful of restaurants that you could say were truly locally sourcing, that legacy has already been passing before our very eyes. So we're seeing a lot of other restaurants that have, you know, similar ingredients that are in season. And, and I go to the market every Saturday to do pre-order pickups and I see the other restaurant names on the boxes, you know, you know who they are because they're every week going to pick up and there's a commitment there. Anybody that's worked in the Miller Union kitchen fully grasps and understands that commitment because it's what we do every day. And so, and especially if you work on a Wednesday or a Saturday, because Wednesdays we get all the farm deliveries to the back door or Saturdays, I show up from the market with <laughs> literally a car full, full to the ceiling with boxes of produce. And there's no way you can't not see it because it's just in, it's, it's in every corner of the kitchen, there's something going on with local food. And I do think that um, anybody that leaves Miller Union carries that on with them to some extent, or at least they understand that's what we do and that they, they learn how to respect and treat these products with pride because they also see the farmers coming to deliver and they get a chance to meet them. And there's a real connection there. And, you know, some of my, um, cooks and servers and managers all go to the markets. I run into them and I run into our customers and it's just this good feeling. It's this, it's a great like synergy of all these different parts of a community coming together. Um, Steven, would you say that people come to Miller Union to work in the kitchen because they know that's part of your philosophy or does it kind of 
happen organically where maybe they they come to get a job and then they are happily surprised and then educated about this local food movement? That's a good question. I, I would I don't know what people think and what their first impressions are before they walk in the door, but I would assume our reputation precedes us that we are known for lo local sourcing and hopefully this award ceremony will help echo that. But um, there's certainly, there, there, there will be the moment, of, the light bulb moment where they're like, okay, this really is real. Like they are doing as much as they can with local everything. And so, and we talk about that to our people when we're, when they're in training, you know, we only serve grass-fed beef and pasture poultry, pasture pork and local produce, seasonal produce and, you know, locally milled grains and whatever else we can get our hands on, you know, cheese and de decimal place cheese. We've been serving it since we opened. And, you know, there's just that connection and those relationships that people start to see the same faces coming to our back door with the deliveries and they start to realize, okay, this is like the real deal. So I, I do feel like maybe they know that going into it, but they certainly know it on the way out or while they're there. I love that. I love that. And I love the idea of you, because I do, I have seen you at market for everyone listening. I've, I used to sell to Stephen myself and when I ran a farm and I see you at the market every weekend. And I love this idea and image of you going to the market and kind of seeing what's there a la minute, feeling out what inspires you and grabbing some of that and then coming back to Miller Union to experiment, to see how it comes into your menu and how it's integrated. But it is like, I, I can imagine some people starting out on the line are like, oh my gosh, this is so, this is so fly by the seat of your pants, cowboy style of, <laughs> of running a restaurant. So, well, it's more organized than that because we do get a heads up <laughs> from the farmers of what they have coming, yeah. what they're producing, and we do get an opportunity to pre-order. So okay. we plan a little bit. Sometimes it's a short-term plan. Sometimes it's a longer-term plan. And we often have conversations like, "Hey, how long are you going to have this beautiful baby?" Pak choy or you know how long are you going to be harvesting spinach because you know it's such a short season here but you know things like that we can we can we can fly by the seat of our pants but we can also do some planning and it's a little mix of both and there are de definitely days where we do a quick change because something wasn't available or something new and exciting came in that we wanted to work into the mix um and then there are other times where, you know, once summertime hits, you can kind of go on autopilot in a, to a degree because there's so much beautiful produce and you know, it's so hot for so long, it's gonna be around for a long time. You know, the, the field peas and summer squash and cucumbers and tomatoes, like once they set in, they're around for a while. You can, you can count on those for your summertime coasting, but. Yeah. All the spring, you got to make a lot more, um, you know, abrupt changes as things are coming in and out of season. What What advice would you give to a chef looking to start sourcing locally um, that hasn't been doing that before? I mean, it's definitely a different style of communication and a different way of thinking. So 
you really have to, um, I mean, because especially if you're getting deliveries at, at the restaurant, we probably get eight different availability lists, maybe more a week and trying to make those decisions of how to spread the love because we want to support all the farmers that we have relationships with. Many of them might be growing similar things. Some people have, you know, one item only that the others don't. And so, and then also comparing the pricing, you know, pricing is a big part of your food costs and you have to consider it. And, you know, and unfortunately, if there, if one person has beets for $3 and the other one has beets for two and they're similar quality, you're going to go for the ones for two. But what I like to do is buy a little bit from each because I don't want to ignore one person just because maybe it costs them a little more to grow these beets. And I always think about the real estate that vegetables take up on a farm and, and how that must factor into the costs. Um, and I, I'm always curious how local growers do figure out their costs. I'm sure you could give insight to that. That's not why we're mm -hmm. here, but I, I do, I do love thinking about the reciprocal, like what is it that, you know, how do they make their, their business model and how do they determine what these things cost? Um, because I know it's a lot of work and there's a lot of gambling involved in farming. Sometimes things don't work out. You run a trial, it does well, then you do a bigger batch of something and, and it's not the same. We do the same thing in the kitchen, you know? We might run a test of something, it's great, and we put it into production, it's not as good as we thought it would be or gets lost in translation. So I think there's a lot of things to consider, but if you want the best, freshest ingredients you can get, you're gonna get them from local farms. And that's hands down the, the best message I would send to someone that is trying to do it for the first time, just tasting and, and cooking with these ingredients, you realize how much superior they are to commodity products. And they, they win time and time again. Yeah, I love that. And you can see the person that you're buying it from. So you can- relationship. Yeah, you can ask questions. There's feedback. You could even plan together in a way. Um, so I know you're also composting in the restaurant, which is huge. And um, I spoke to you a couple of days ago about what y'all are doing with that at Miller Union. How does sourcing from farms and the rhythms around that lower the amount of food, food waste? And do, does that lower the amount of food waste? Do you think that you, the relationship between composting and food waste and sourcing local, do you think that there is a relationship between those two? I think it's a very complex relationship, um, but there is a relationship there. So let me explain the composting first. We work with compost now. So we're, we're not actually composting on site. We're collecting compostable organic material that's being hauled away to be turned into compost by the wonderful folks at Compost Now. And they work with uh, residential and commercial entities. Um, so that takes some planning because you have to figure out how much you're going to generate in a day, how many bins you need to have, how often your frequency of collection is. That's an art that takes some observation and some time, but we've got it down to a science. For us, we have um, four bins that are collected twice a week. 
so basically it covers we have we have eight cycles and we have six or seven days that we're open depending on um, how staffed we are <laughs> and uh, so that's that's in and of itself one component um, I think buying and sourcing from local farms you you know you're going to pay a little bit more but you're going to get a, a superior product so the other the flip side to that is how much of that product can you use for instance let's go back to the beets if you're buying beets with tops there's usable product on the top end of the root that not everybody thinks about using and so taking those stems and cutting them short and sauteing them and adding the greens in and using that for one dish and using the beetroot for another dish that extends your purchase and you get a better food cost um, or buying you know fennel from a local farm and you have the bulbs which everybody's familiar with but the stalks and the fronds can be used in other ways and there's a a much larger portion of the fennel is the stalk and the frond. The bulb is a very small portion, maybe 30% of the entire plant. It's all culinarily usable. And, you know, the way we treat it, a lot of times we'll cut off the bulbs, put them in one bin, cut off the stalks, put them in another, and cut off the fronds, put them in another. We use them in three different ways. Um, carrot, you know, buying carrots with tops. You don't have to just throw the tops away. You can use those too. And so, all those things can play a part into full utilization and zero waste. And then there's also how you portion and what you put on the plate to serve to the guests. Because whatever comes back from the table if people don't choose to take it home will also go into the compost bin. Um, even like we, when we butcher, you know, let's say we butcher whole chickens, we're gonna save the bones, roast them and make a stock get flavor from those bones and then toss them. Rather than tossing the raw bones away, let's use them for something to impart flavor into a dish. And I mean, think about, you know, very well-made chicken stock is a wonderful layer of flavor in so many different things. Or vegetable stock, save all those scraps from all the cast-offs that you don't have a place on the menu for, or there's more collecting than you can use that people are gonna eat and create a really interesting vegetable stock that changes with the seasons. It tastes different in the spring, tastes different in the summer. Just like the terroir of goat milk when they're grazing on different things, it's the same idea. And so there's a lot of different relationships there that I could draw parallels to. And I think it's just all thinking about how precious food is, valuing it more, and understanding when is it appropriate to use it for flavor and when it's time to go into the compost bin. Compost bin is the last resort and I'll do anything I can to keep food from going into a landfill. So I feel good about compost because at least I know it's diverting from landfill and we can make the size of our dumpster way smaller because all we're throwing in there is packaging and twist ties and latex gloves, which unfortunately we have to use a lot of for food safety and you know, those things aren't compostable and they're going to have to be dealt with and they're, they're not recyclable either. Yeah. Well, you can't, you know, there's certain things like food safety and stuff, especially now in this day and age that we just have to deal with. But I think that what you're saying is so right. And in that it is 
the language and the dialogue you have with the food you eat um, and, and being responsive rather than demanding. And part of that is exploratory with what you can eat, the root all the way to the leaf, like your beautiful book. Um, and so I, I think that that's really profound, profound conversation um, between the stuff that you, the work that you do um, and and the products and the things that you're you're using to create that type of art. So and I think also like the letting the seasons dictate to you what you should serve rather than saying, I'm going to make this and I'm going to find these things like really just reacting to the farmer's harvest is the most generous thing we can do to the food community because we're buying something that needs to be moved out of the field and into the hands of a capable chef or home cook. And we're feeding nutritious, delicious food to people or to our family. And it's just, it's a, it's a very rewarding way to work with food because it is real and it's, it's just satisfying. Like there's a tangible feeling about it that is just, it's, it's definitely like what keeps me going when I work these crazy long hours because I don't know that I could get behind doing what I do if it didn't have some meaning to it. If I was just buying stuff from Cisco, well, I don't want to say anything bad. I was just buying big box stuff, <laughs> and, uh, you know, commodity things and just grinding through the day with, you know, no respect for the ingredients. What purpose is spending all that time? You know, because food preparation takes a long time, especially at the level that we're doing. So it's important to find that reason and that purpose to keep you going because it does shine a beacon light for all of us in the kitchen to keep going. There's a reason. Yeah, well, certainly we are thankful for Miller Union for doing what you all do. And we're thankful for you as well uh, as a former farmer and as someone who knows a lot of the farmers that you source from. I just wanna thank you, Stephen, as well as Stevenson and Chris for being on the show. And Stephen, um, how can listeners come out and support you all now that things are opening back up um, in a safe and manageable way? Yeah, um, well, we are open nightly at 5 p.m. for dinner. Um, you know, during the pandemic, we were doing a lot of takeout and, and meal deals and all kinds of um, different options. But now we're really focusing on in-house dining. We have two beautiful patios as well and uh, a great service team that loves the restaurant, loves the food, and they know a lot about wine and they can educate you on all levels. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephen. I hope you have a great rest of your week and a great next service. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Lauren. It's a pleasure to be here. Next, guest host Kiana Upton of Nourish Botanica interviews chef and food writer Stephen Satterfield, the founder of Whetstone Magazine and creator and host of the forthcoming Netflix documentary series, High on the Hog, How African-American Cuisine Transformed America. This four-part series arrives on Netflix on May 26th, inspired by the work of Dr. Jessica B. Harris, 
and chronicles Satterfield's exploration of the historical and cultural roots of staple foods. Today, he and Kiana discuss entrepreneurship, career paths and travel, as well as representation in the wine and food industry, and recognizing the fundamental impact of African Americans on the food and identity of America. Hello. Hi, Georgia Organics listener. This is Kiana representing Nourish in Black. Um, and today I am honored to be story gathering, story sharing with Stephen Satterfield, the founder of Whetstone. Um, he's someone who I have sort of, I've heard of you for a long time, but we haven't really got a chance to just like really have an immersive conversation one on one. So I'm really excited to do that. And um, I'd love for you to just tell the people a little bit about yourself, your name, what you do, and uh, your relationship with food. Okay, thank you for that. <laughs> um, my name is Stephen Satterfield. I'm the founder of Whetstone. It's a magazine and a media company that is all about food origins where the things we eat and drink originate and the cultures who have brought us those traditions and who keep those traditions. Um, and so we publish a magazine, we make podcasts, we make films and yeah, that's what we do. That's awesome. I, um, how I first connected with you was through Bronte Velez. Like Shout out to Bronte. <laughs> Bronte is amazing. She runs um, Led to Life, where they take guns and turn them into shovel to plant trees, plants. And a few years ago, they had an event that I um, did some dinner logistics support on um, here in Atlanta. And that's the first time I heard of Steven Satterfield. And I think this was like 2017. What year did you start Whetstone? Um, yeah, 2017. We started doing crowdfunding in 2016. Okay. And then, um, yeah, 2017. Okay. So to that point, I, um, in like, you know, doing some, a little bit more research for this, for this um, conversation, I read this quote, I'm, I'm going to read it Okay. because it pertains to, you know, crowdfunding. Crowdfunding is an experience that I have gone through. I've been going through, still going through with Nurse and Black. Um, and so the quote is, it says, with its launch in the spring of 2017, Satterfield celebrates the progress, but remains tenacious and hungry in regards to the work still to be mastered. Looking back on the years before the pop of his editorial and creative break, he says something that doesn't just resonate with me. It reverberates, whatever, you know the word. It says, he says it, you say that it's torturous to have such clarity of vision and not be able to get there. That's the thing I'm always looking at and that's why I suffer to whatever degree I suffer. He goes on this time with more realism and conviction. Now I'm at a place where I'm finally doing the work that I wanna do and the final act is figuring out how to pay for it. Oh my goodness, how has that been like that? When I read that, I was like, yes. Like it's, it's like you're, I don't know how to explain it. I want you to explain how you feel about it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I called it torturous, so um, it's a difficult place to be in. What I meant by that quote is that 
you know, for many people, um, the one of the greatest challenges um, and privileges that that many of us who who have that challenge and privilege hold is that um, we do feel and to large degrees are enabled to pursue our own versions of, of freedom, right? Like we call them people's dreams. And so the things that we dream about are so immense, dreams are so immense that um, sometimes they propel and, and give fuel, you know, but sometimes there are so many, so many dreams that are overlapping and interlocking and colliding. And that's a beautiful kaleidoscope of, of dreams. And you can just enjoy those dreams and go to those dreams to check out or whatever they can do for you. But I was talking about my dreams torturing me because I have had a very clear and specific dream and a recurring dream that is unusual actually for people who have dreams because my dreams weren't knocking into each other, changing or overlapping. It was like, I have this very specific thing that I'm trying to do and without the proper resources, I figured out how to do it better than almost anyone else in my field. And with certainly less resources than anyone else in my field. And yet the thing that I actually need to make the dream pop off is the only thing that has eluded me. And we've been told that, well, if you just make do, don't give up, make it be the best, you know, uh, build in like from a business perspective, build a customer base, get your name out there, build an audience, show proof of concept, did all that shit. So why is it that capital, the thing that's most required is the thing that's most elusive. And even the most magical Negro who has done magical things actualizing the dream still can't get what's required. So I was talking about being tortured by that. Yes, I very much relate. Um, I wonder, I hope, I'm hopeful that, you know, there are people who are listening to this who feel like some sort of like camaraderie with that. Um, because there is this feeling of like, I don't know, I don't I wouldn't say, I mean, I love the way you said that you were the best. I love that because I feel like there is a, like it, it can lead you to start feeling like doubting yourself, maybe a sense of imposter syndrome, like maybe I suck, maybe that's why I'm not getting it. Maybe because it's, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I should just work harder, bootstrap it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
I, I don't know if I said that we're the best, but I feel like we're among the best. And what I can say more definitively than that we're the best is that no one has done more or better with less. Got it. Uh, we're certainly the most resourceful and we do things that as far as in our area of coverage, our beat, like they call it in the industry, um, like we're on that corner, like more consistently and in more ways than anyone else, any other, you know, resource or, or legacy uh, companies who really could do the kind of journalism that we do that isn't focused on celebrity or search engine optimization or algorithmic analytics. It's based on a, a real editorial point of view that we deliver on, we invest in, and we report on it. That's from real people, you know? Well, where did it, what, what inspired this? I mean, I know little dots of info. So if you don't mind helping me connect the dots between Noma and now and whatever other dots there may be that brought you here. Um, the restaurant is called Nopa. Um, it's called what? Nopa, N-O-P-A. Okay. There is a there is a super famous restaurant called Noma in Copenhagen. Yes, I um, that came up recently in another call, which is a whole other mess. But yes. <laughs> um, shout out to Renee. Renee's a Whetstone subscriber. Um, so yeah, Nopa is a restaurant in uh, it's uh, San Francisco, California, uh, that I worked at from. 2010 to about 2014, 15. And um, it, at that time, especially in the early 10s, um, it was a very, very busy restaurant, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people every night. Um, and really respected, reputable place. I'm not saying it's not now, I just haven't it's been several years since I worked there. So, but at this time it was very much like that spot. Um, and I was just getting back into the restaurant industry after taking off a couple years, having just founded uh, a nonprofit organization called the International Society of Africans in Wine and, or ISAW. And that was, a nonprofit that I started after a career in the wine industry in Portland, Oregon. Um, a place that I went to culinary school was very, I had a great experience there um, with my culinary education in and outside of school. It was a great time to learn about food and drink uh, as a young person in the early 2000s there. Um, so I was, I was working as a sommelier in Portland. I was discouraged by the whiteness of the world of wine. Um, and I really couldn't see a place in wine that made sense for me. So then I moved back to Atlanta and I wanted to stay in the wine industry, but do it in a way that felt more, um, 
reflective of my interests and do it in a way that felt um, additive. So I started researching the wine industry on the continent in South Africa, which is where the wine industry there really is most thriving. And I started learning about um, the history of, of wine in South Africa. And that agricultural story is very similar to our agricultural story here in the Southeastern US, um, which is to say that its foundation is on the enslavement and exploitation of African people, Black African people. So basically, I was like, wow, this is really deep because, you know, part of why I was disenchanted with wine is like the whole education was colonial and so limited, like in culinary school. And this is probably still true, you know, like they only teach you French technique. You know what I'm saying? Like you could go to culinary school from 180 whole ass other countries in the with your own traditions, you know, like it's wild. And they will teach you French cuisine, the, the words that we use, including restaurant, including chef, like stage, like the whole, we're so deep and deeply whitewashed and, um, colonized in in the mind and just like we're, we're coming out of it now and whetstone is very much like a response to not being that but yeah. stuff that we take for granted so anyway the same is true in the wine industry and so i ended up um starting this nonprofit working with black uh farmers and and black owned wine companies in south africa um ended up doing media for that project, working with film as a storytelling medium for the first time, both as a producer, in some cases on camera. We did a newsletter. We used, um, we were early using Facebook as a marketing tool, you know, back in 08, doing weird campaigns for the, for the brand. Um, so it was really building its own momentum and, um, you know, we were doing events in Atlanta, brunch events, tastings at night, and then that recession hit hard, um, because we couldn't sell wine direct to consumer. I'm just realizing this is a long answer, but I'll get I there. love this um, answer. Um, and then basically we, we had to rely all on donations because we couldn't because of the laws we couldn't sell alcohol to people so the the nonprofit basically fizzled in 2010 and that's what sent me to california back in the industry working as a sommelier um, and as a manager again and from that time 2010 to 2013 honestly i was just like licking my wounds a little bit, happy to be in California, just a hard reset. Um, and then, and it was like, it was a great time. You know, I, I had great friends out in California, like the wine is exquisite, obviously. 
the food culture is so developed. Um, it was a good place for me to be. Uh, even as, as a professional level, you know, having worked in Oregon in the early 2000s, like it, it, San Francisco was like energetically equivalent, um, I think in terms of just the rigor and explosive creativity and openings like, so it was a great time to be working in restaurants there. Um, but then I say like my third year there, I started to get like a little bored again with restaurants. Um, the community in San Francisco started to change a lot, especially like 2014 was a pivotal year uh, for gentrification. So uh, I, I kind of started to move outside of the restaurant and convince the owners of NOPA to um, take me, take my job more outside of the restaurant, kind of reporting almost on the farms that we worked with, um, doing a, a lot of stuff probably Georgia Organics does, which is like creating media about um, the local farms, you know, in, in the state. And I was sort of doing that to some degree with our menu, um, both originally for the, the staff and then increasingly you know, public facing stuff too on websites and interviews. So I kind of created this media company inside of the restaurant, um, which I hadn't realized at the time, but I had, I had been training for, you know, with the nonprofit. Um, and so I started to realize, you know, in 2014, like I'm really competent at this. I like it. Um, it's easy for me to be productive in this way. Like I want to do more. And that slowly became my job full time. Um, and then by 2015, I didn't work on the floor at all anymore. Uh, I was just running this media thing until um, basically they kicked me out and they gave me five grand to start uh, a new um, company. And that was, that was Whetstone. I hired a designer, we created the logo. And yeah, that was how Whetstone got started. That was awesome. <laughs> um, I wanna know about recently, like when I say recently, I mean like an hour ago, okay. I saw on Twitter that you won an award and uh, the, an impact award. And I'd love to know about that, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, let me make sure that um, I think it's called the food and farm. Uh, it's so many. It's so many. I need to make sure I get the, the language right of the um, organization. So you'll have to um, bear with me or let me, you know, do that take at the end. Sure. Um, yeah, basically we, the Impact Award, um, it's from the Food and Farms Communications Fund. That's what yes. it is, the Impact Media Award from the Food and Farm Communications Fund. And it's for your podcast? Was for um, our podcast, Point of Origin. Um, we were given a $10,000 award to invest um, reinvest, continue to invest um, in our media making. So we are spinning that down right now. And yeah, that's the first award we've ever won. It's definitely the most 
um, the largest sum that we've ever gotten from another organization who wasn't asking for advertisement in exchange. So. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and then I want, I, I kind of wanted to save this for last because I don't, I don't want to say it's the best, but it's, it's a large recent occurrence. And um, <laughs> yeah. so I guess two days ago, it was, you announced on Instagram and, and I'm saying two days y'all, but um, today is April 23rd when I'm recording this. Um, this podcast is not coming out now. <laughs> so when you listen to this, just know it was fresh and I'm freshly excited. Um, so there's a Netflix show that Steven is hosting and congratulations, tell us all about it. I'm, I'm like, I was like, oh my God, yeah, it's right in time for the podcast. So yeah. <laughs> Good timing by you. This is technically my first interview. Um, this is uh, uh, something that has been in the works for a long time that, um, that you know, I was wondering if it was ever going to happen. That's But that's how these things move often. Um, but it is a four-part docuseries on Netflix called High on the Hog. It is based on the text, the seminal text of Dr. Jessica B. Harris, who I hope a lot of y'all already know, but please get to know Dr. J and her incredible canon of scholarship and African foodways, African-American diasporic foodways. Um, so just one of her many books, High on the Hog, was acquired and um, yeah, adapted into four hours of television that is celebrating the legacy and impact of Black people and our culture in the kitchen. And the story moves chronologically uh, from West Africa, so in Benin, um, in episode one. And then we kind of move to uh, South Carolina and, and we reflect on that arrival and those adaptations. And then we move uh, north up to Monticello mm. where um, we have some a big surprise. I'm not gonna spoil it, but a big surprise um, at Monticello. Um, and it's all very real, you know, like we don't go to Monticello to like soft pedal what what was going on there and and that the president those would-be presidents of the u.s like this whole notion of foundational wealth for white people and and black people as as property like you know the show doesn't miss that um but at the same at the same time it is a celebration and it is our story and so the the overall tempo of the show, I would say, is very upbeat. It's got a lot of incredible cameos from all the homies, like <laughs> everyone you want to see uh, who is like doing their thing in food right now. Uh, people who are, are having their turn. And when does it come out? Sorry to cut you off. 
Yeah, um, it comes out on May the 26th. So I don't know when this comes out, but maybe I know, I'm like, let me look it. and see. Um, <laughs> or just watch it, you know, wait another couple weeks, either way. Um, how did you, so, and your role is the host? Yeah, I'm hosting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exciting. And congratulations again. And I'm, I'm really excited. I'm excited about everything that you're doing. Um, but Clearly, I'm doing this podcast because food and um, people who are advocates of sovereignty and really just um, the wisdom wisdom that's in the soil, the stories that are of the people of the soil excite me. Like, it's really like, I feel like it's uncovering like mystery or mysteries in a certain sense, but um, they're familiar, if that makes sense. Like, oh, I don't know this story or I don't know this, but I, I, I recognize it. So all of what you're doing um, is, is really cool. And I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today, but I did have, I had one last question. Okay. And it is, um, it's a, it's, what is your, your dream menu and where, like, where would you be? Like paint the picture of you eating your dream menu and where? Anywhere um, in the world. Um, God, I'm so bad at these type of questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I love eating outside, first of all. So we're outside somewhere. Um, we're probably on a coastline, you know what I mean? Um, we're probably eating um, something that came out of the water. Mm. you know um we're definitely drinking champagne um we are we really are um and so yeah there's probably gonna be like you know shellfish mm. involved caviar could be involved um <laughs> a f some fried fish mm -hmm. could be involved um you know, some some rice. I, I love fish and rice, you know. Um, that could be involved, but it will be the the a blend of um this alfresca mm. eating with um this the right amount of bougie highbrow. Yes. With like substance. Mm. And, and company and conversation and just like on the plate as well you know mm. so like you can't just be out here eating caviar <laughs> and and no fish and rice you know right. you gotta have you gotta have rice rice gotta be popping but you know what I mean thank um, you yeah that's the answer that's, that sounds really good and tasty uh, and I, I appreciate you very much yeah, thank you for thinking of me. That's our show for today. Don't forget to join the party as we celebrate farmers and chefs this Thursday, May 27. Secure your spot at georgiaorganics.org slash awards. As always, thank you for joining us. And don't forget to support your local farmers and farmers markets this week. 
You can visit George Organic's Good Food Guide to help connect you with farmers near you at gfg.georgiaorganics.org. We'll see you next time.